Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Alright, welcome everybody to the Lakers Legacy Podcast, where playoffs are no more, but the offseason has just begun. So play on, playa, because the offseason is in season for the Lakers Legacy Podcast. So let's start Rubik's Cubing the future to no end. I'm your host, Jonathan Hernandez, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tommy Alexander, And with draft workouts, the draft, and free agency right around the corner, though the Lakers' Western Conference Finals bid may have ended with a whimper, there is still more to be excited about with regards to the Lakers' future because of the breadth of flexibility and options they've left themselves with thanks to the masterclass of a trade deadline they had this past season. So today we'll be talking about where the Lakers go from here, talk about their stay-slash-keep options, talk about some D'Lo, Kyrie, Van Vliet stuff, and also get into an early look at our top MLE targets. But before we get to all that, Tommy, how are you feeling about LA's offseason? It's a pretty important one. It is a pretty important one. I think the nice thing about this offseason is there are few, there are much fewer question marks than we've had, like, Pretty much every season since we the, since starting with the summer that we actually landed AD. So, you know, it, it's like we need to address some things, but I we can be also like a little bit conservative, more conservative than we've been in years past. And I think there's like a good argument to bring back like substantially. Yeah, I don't know. You, I mean, you can look at the roster and think of like probably eight or nine guys you could bring back. So. I feel pretty good about the offseason, but there are still obviously questions that need to be addressed and they almost need, they almost need to be more precise, right? Because mm. in prior years you have like, you know, okay, we have to fill six roster spots with that minimum that minimum signing. So the chances that you hit on one or two of those is pretty high. If you're only looking at like we have our MLE, we have a couple of vet minimum signing, like you have it's you have much uh much less margin for error a little bit. Yeah, I agree. It's both easier and yet harder, but at least we have proof of concept from this last season, right? And we don't want to be too overreactionary any one way. So before we get into talking about the landscape and logistics of the Lakers cap books and who they should keep, who they shouldn't keep and get into MLE stuff, Alan and I in the last podcast already put our capper on the season. But since we haven't gotten your perspective yet on how things went with the tail end of the Denver Nuggets series and just how that left you to close the season, give me your one to two minutes, Tommy, of 
yeah, just your thoughts on how the season ended and whether it left a sour taste in your mouth or not really. It didn't leave a sour taste in my mouth. I think we got beat by a better team. In a way, it kind of reminded me, although I think our team was better than the team I'm about to describe, but it sort of reminded me of that, um, I want to say, 2012 Laker team that lost, Mm. that got swept by the Mavericks in the second round. Um, You know, it just felt like game to game, there wasn't really anything that we could do better to, like, help us win. Of course, like, make open shots, like, you know, having D'Angelo Russell, like, show up. Like, those are things that, could have helped obviously but it just felt like game plan wise and just ability to consistently contain the other team it was just not there um you never felt confident even in game four when we were up by like 17 points or whatever it it just kind of felt fake right and it was obviously in hindsight but so denver was just better i don't think that that should cause an overreaction i think this group had very, very little time together. They played a quarter of the season together at best, and most of that was without LeBron. Um, they beat two really good teams in Memphis and Golden State, the defending champs, without home court advantage in either series. Um, they really had to lean heavily on a second-year sophomore player in Austin Reeves to kind of carry a huge chunk of the load offensively, and he not only like stepped into that role but kind of thrived in it um you know I, I just think there's so much here you could work with and i worry the only worry i have is that they sort of you know say that well it wasn't enough so let's just see what will be enough and you know i hope they don't burn all of the young players on it, trying to chase a third star again they already got burned by that with the westbrook thing I fortunately, I don't think there is a third star out there for them to chase this summer, at least as of right now. So hopefully they save themselves sort of from themselves. But, you know, I think they see the writing on the wall at this point with LeBron. Like, he's not retiring, I don't think, next year. But it's it's coming, right, in the coming years. So, like, they need to sort of think... I don't, I don't, I don't want to say, like, do what the Warriors did and sort of bridge the gap between short and long term. I think there's a way to be long term, like, short term, but also long term, if that makes sense. But... You know, I think uh, I really, really hope there's no overreaction. Yeah. So I think that transitions us pretty cleanly into a discussion about D'Angelo Russell. And this is where we'll get our offseason talk going, yeah. because I think D'Angelo Russell and what happened in the Western Conference finals is a good reference point for. I think the understandable reactionary takes that most fans have had to D'Angelo Russell. But I also just want to take a step back because people can feel however they want to feel about D'Lo, right? But it got to a point after the Western Conference Finals, and I'm not trying to water down what he didn't do in the Western Conference Finals. Look, the dude was bad. He averaged like six points, right? On like 30% shooting. He was... was yeah. He was bad defensively. Yeah, he was continually the weakest link in the chain defensively for this team, right? But at the same time, I think the takes we were getting out of that series started to get just as bad, just as terrible as D'Angelo Russell was. All of a sudden, the lack of perspective from people was kind of just mind-boggling to me. Like, there were some people, Tommy, who were telling me, D'Angelo Russell is not worth $10 million. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) I was like, did I hear that right? First of all, you can have that opinion for yourself. That's fine. But if you're just looking at the market, that's not realistic. It doesn't make logistical, practical sense. And then also, how can we say that when we just faced a team in the Memphis Grizzlies whose bench point guard in Tyus Jones, 
And Tyus Jones is this like shining example of assist to turnover ratio god, right? The Memphis Grizzlies had a guard in Tyus Jones who's making 14 to $15 million a year, who was unplayable in that series. And yet we're going to say D'Angelo Russell, who helped lead the Lakers to the Western Conference Finals, is not worth $10 million? Look, at the very least, he's worth the MLE, the full MLE of $12 million, okay? So <laughs> I just wanted to take a step back and be like, look, D'Angelo Russell was bad in the Western Conference Finals, but we cannot let that blind what he did prior because even if you just look at him as a regular season guard, 17-6 and on 48% from the field and 41% from three, hitting 2.7 a game, that is like at least 15 to $18 million, at least. And in that stretch, D'Angelo Russell helped the Lakers go 18-8 and after the trade, where LeBron James was absent for 13 of those games. He helped us get to the Western Conference Finals, and was legitimately the Lakers' third best player in the first round against Memphis. And then in the Golden State Warriors series, even though you may say that Austin Reeves was better or the third best player on both ends, you could also say D'Angelo Russell helped win Game 1 of that series and Game 3 at home when he had like 20 points in the first like 10 minutes, right? And then at worst, I feel like you can say that you can use him to stem the tide in the regular season. And then just logistically for me, you also just need his salary as potential trade ballast moving forward. And I think even just trying to give D'Angelo Russell a bit more benefit of the doubt, D'Angelo Russell wasn't the main reason why we lost the Denver Nuggets series. To me, the main reason why is LeBron James and Anthony Davis were burnt out, banged up, and needed surgery. And they clearly were not the superstars we needed them to be at that moment. And then on top of it, our roster construction clearly exacerbated all of D'Angelo Russell's weaknesses. So, for example, starting that series off with three guards and playing D'Angelo Russell next to Dennis Schroeder and Austin Reeves was not setting him up for success, you know? Um, And then if you flank D'Angelo Russell with guys from the 2019-20 season, and I know this is if this, then that, coulda, woulda, shoulda stuff. But just hypothetically, let's say the Lakers had a full offseason like they're about to have. Let's say they had a full training camp to assess the holes in their roster and they fill that up and they they address the margin areas of need to sort of look a little bit more like the 2019-20 championship Lakers where a guy like D'Angelo Russell can be hidden a little bit more with guys like a Caruso or a KCP, or a Kuzma, or there's additional big men on the Lakers like Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee who allow Anthony Davis to play free safety or LeBron James to play free safety. If those things are available to D'Angelo Russell, I don't think he shrinks and totally disappears and gets into his own head the way that he spiraled in this Denver Nuggets series. It's just because... Yeah, I feel like it was a it was a matter of the roster construction, his own weaknesses, but also the fact that at a time when we needed LeBron James and Anthony Davis to step up, they just couldn't, you know? And so, yeah, that I guess that's my spiel on, on D'Angelo Russell. Do you have anything else to add about contextualizing just how we should look at him moving forward? Because I think it's also important to keep in mind that It's not like D'Angelo Russell is some playoff veteran who's been to the playoffs time and time again and is like every single time we've seen him in the playoffs, he's never been a Western Conference Finals player. This is his first time in the Western Conference Finals, you know? So to me, it's almost like we're just seeing D'Angelo Russell also 
try and find himself as a player. And I think you need to give some credence to that or factor that into how you evaluate him. Like, I think he'll learn from this experience, you know? I don't know if it'll be with the Lakers, but I don't think this is the death knell on D'Angelo Russell as a playoff player. But obviously, there are things that we should take into account. And if we can fill out the roster around him and not say, I'm not saying we should fill out the roster around him like we did Russell Westbrook, but keep these things into account when we're building out next year's roster. I think there is a a scenario in reality where D'Angelo Russell is still with this Lakers team. He's helping us stem the tide in the regular season. He's also there as salary ballast. And maybe he's even, at the the time we get to the playoffs, maybe he's even a better player. But do you have anything else to add on contextualizing D'Angelo Russell? Yeah, I think the big thing is experience, right? So D'Angelo Russell, as we know, because we drafted him, was sort of a late bloomer. He was the top, he was the number two pick in the draft. He didn't look like a number two pick his first two years in the NBA. Part of that was the context of the team he was on. We were very, very bad. Um, But part of that was just he was sort of, you know, a little bit slower to develop maybe compared to some other guys in his class. He has he only had like one real or two, I guess, playoff series before this year. Last year, they got swept, right? I think the Timberwolves got swept or lost in five games or something to the to the Grizzlies. So pretty short series. He's never made it past the first round. He's certainly never made it to the conference finals or even sniffed anything close to that, right? So I think the idea that like a 27-year-old, I'm not saying he's got like, you know, he's an 18-year-old with the, you know, completely unlimited upside. I'm just saying that like, to me, it feels a little foolish to assume that a guy like D'Angelo Russell is not going to improve at all. He's still improving season by season. If you look at his like regular season stats, I mean, he just had a career mm-hmm. high three point shooting season, right? So like he's getting better at certain things. We saw him during the regular season and he was a huge part of, you know, our, our push to make the playoffs. He was a huge part of our wins in the first two series. He was able to, you know, sort of use his experience against Memphis last year to have a good series against them, use his experience playing with the Warriors to have an a good series against them. He just is not, you know, despite the fact that he's six, five and he's a bigger guard that gives him an offensive advantage over smaller players. He's just not going to be that physical guard who can, you know, take hits from guys like KCP and Bruce Brown on the perimeter and still do what he wants to do. I'm not saying that's like impossible by the way, because like now he has, it had that experience and that exposure and he, he got played off the floor in the Western conference finals. So like he will be thinking about that stuff moving forward. Right. So Mm -hmm. like that's a factor too. And I just think like, you know, there were the reports that his team was seeking a four year, $100 million deal from the, from the wolves and the wolves were sort of balking. They wanted to give him either less money or less years. I think he's like probably played himself like, even below that a little bit. The, the interesting thing is going to be like how the Lakers balance the years and the money. Um, because like if we can if we can keep him, I, frankly, I don't even care about the years, but if we can keep him for like a starting in the 20 to 25 range, I th- you know, ideally even closer to 22, 24, like something like that. Like I think like you can't really get a player who is going to give you this sort of offensive impact as a playmaker and as a shooter and scorer as, as you will with D'Lo. And, you know, we did spend the first round pick. Yes. Part of that was to dump Russ, but look, Russ was an expiring contract. 
Malik Beasley is he's a flawed player. I don't know what his future is with us. Vanderbilt is is a solid guy, but again, only one year left on his deal, and and he's obviously a flawed player. I think you kind of have to keep D'Lo to sort of justify that trade. I justify is maybe the wrong word, but like you know, sort of the point I'm trying to make is what you were saying earlier. With you know, you got to keep a guy like that at that contract level on your books, because that will be a movable contract. You have a chance right now to get him probably at a below market deal um, compared to what he would have gotten three weeks ago or four weeks ago. So like you just do that and you live with the results. It's an 82 Mm -hmm. game season, right? It's like, we all know now the playoffs, we're all reminded now, I guess the deeper and deeper you get into the playoffs, the more different of a game it becomes. Um, but we still have to get through the 82 game season and D'Angelo Russell yes. has proven time and time again that he is a, he is a real like he can he can you know whether or not he's going to get injured that's another issue but like he can perform in the regular season he's done it consistently he's done it at a high level and he can play with LeBron and AD I I am excited about bringing him back and I think he fits really well with Austin I just think we need our third and fourth guards then to be a little bit more balanced yeah, I agree. And I think the market correction on D'Lo should help level out fans' perception of him because I understand the argument of like, yeah, D'Lo's good, but he's so inconsistent. He's our third highest paid player. Well, come next year, he probably won't even be our third highest paid player, like averaged annually when Austin Reeves gets his new contract, that'll be Austin. And if D'Lo's down to like $20 million per year annually, averaged an- annually, I think that'll help people's perception of him. And then on top of the fact that like, D'Lo is still the Lakers starting point guard who's gone the furthest in recent years with regards to how far the Lakers have gone in the playoffs, right? And I'm not counting Rondo because Rondo fluctuated off the bench and wasn't in his prime at the time, even though you could arguably say and probably justifiably say Rondo was clearly the most successful recent Lakers point guard. But in terms of a guard who was in their prime and young-ish, D'Lo has gone the furthest of anyone that we've tried to get in recent years. So I don't think we should just throw that out the window so willy-nilly. Okay, with regards to D'Lo, though, and the Lakers' landscape, some quick cap stuff for you guys. So, Tommy, there there are two scenarios the Lakers can work with here. There's one scenario where they can potentially have the non-taxpayer MLE plus BAE, and then there's a scenario where they operate over the cap, re-sign Reeves, Rui, even re-sign one of D'Lo and... Beasley or Bamba and only have the taxpayer mid-level exception to use of $7.4 million. Non-tax Emily is $12 million and then the BA is $4.5 million. I just want to point out that Lakers fans should not necessarily bank on the non-taxpayer Emily and BAE being used by the Lakers because if they use any of those tools, they hard cap themselves. Yeah. And if they hard cap themselves, they have to stay below the $170 million first hard cap. If they want to avail of the non-taxpayer Emily, here are the scenarios that they can do that in. If they have the non-taxpayer Emily and BAE to use, Tommy, it's nearly impossible to keep D'Lo plus one of Bamba or Beasley. You can keep Beasley or Bamba and have the non-taxpayer Emily and BAE, but that's it. And you hard cap yourself. So for me, I would rather have two of either D'Lo plus Beasley and Mo Bamba or whoever we trade those guys for 
or Beasley and Mobamba slash whoever we trade those guys for and the taxpayer Emily and not hard cap ourselves, right? Like that's the scenario that I would prefer. And I think the Lakers would probably, I think that's the direction that they would rather go with as well. I think they'll have a better idea at draft night if there are any trade suitors for Bamba or Beasley's contracts. But even then, I think they would opt for the contract slash trade flexibility of D'Lo, Beasley, taxpayer mid-level at $7.4 million and not hard capping themselves versus Beasley, non-taxpayer Emily of $12 million, BAE of $4.5 million, and we've hard capped ourselves, right? I think people like the idea of having a fresh $12 million to use on a new player on the open market, but those same people don't often truly assess everything that you'd have to sacrifice in order to get that tool. Do you have anything else to add on the non-taxpayer like Emily stuff or the MLE? No, I mean, I think you summarized it well. And the big issue, like, just to reiterate, is the hard cap. Like, it just kind of cripples our flexibility given the kind of big contracts we're going to have to sign this summer. So although it's, like, intriguing to, you know, seek a free agent with a 12.4 or whatever million-dollar tool it ends up being, I think, like, keeping our own guys in-house is probably going to serve us better. And then still having, you know, still having the seven point whatever million MLE to work with. Yeah. And so some quick if this, then that. We're just all going to assume that the Lakers keep Reeves and Rui. I think that's a fair assumption, safe assumption to make. So apart from keeping Reeves and Rui, here is how this shakes out in terms of the Lakers trying to stay under, at the very least, the 180 million second apron of the new CBA. In that respect, if we keep Reeves and Rui, it's very unlikely, Tommy, that the Lakers would be able to keep D'Angelo Russell at whatever his new contract is, which is, I don't know, $22 million. It's very unlikely that they'll be able to keep D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley at his current contract of $16 million, and Mo Bamba at his current contract of $10 million. Keeping all those three in addition to Reeves and Rui, unlikely. Also, Vanderbilt is in this discussion because he's only making $4 million. So Reeves, Rui, and Vando are kept. But D'Lo, Bees, and Bamba, you cannot keep all three of them. It's likely that if the Lakers keep D'Lo, then they'll be able to keep either one of Beasley and Bamba, but not both. Now, let's say there's no D'Angelo Russell. You can keep Beasley and Bamba. If it's just D'Lo himself and no Beasley and Bamba, then that works out too. But you cannot keep all three. You can do sort of amalgamations of D'Lo plus Beasley, D'Lo and Bamba, or just Beasley and Bamba, but not all three. So keep that in mind. So the last discussion in this first part of the episode, Tommy, is then blending our hard cap discussion with this D'Lo, Beasley, Bamba discussion of, do you have any thoughts about hard capping ourselves for Kyrie Irving (laughs) at 40 million to 45 million dollars a year or hard capping ourselves for Fred Van Vliet at 30 million dollars over the next four years on a new contract because again this would hard cap us we would need to use Bees and Bombas contracts at least for Fred Van Vliet and then for Kyrie Irving we would need to use D'Angelo Russell on a new contract which means Dallas is getting a sign in traded D'Angelo Russell for three years and I don't know why Dallas would hard cap themselves for D'Angelo Russell so there's that Yeah, but what are your thoughts on trading for Kyrie Irving, trading for Fred Van Vliet, hard capping ourselves because in both those instances, Fred and Kyrie are getting new contracts. And then on top of that, Tommy, we're likely losing the number 17th pick and maybe Max Christie on top of it just to get those guys in. 
Yeah. I mean, the more and more you stack up, the more ridiculous it sounds, right? Like, Kyrie, the thing that people need to remember is it's not just, like, we could, yes, we could literally just re-sign D'Lo to a $25 million deal, trade him with Beasley and a pick, I guess. I don't even know why we have to include the pick. But, like, you know, the pick to get Kyrie. Is it technically possible? Of course, especially if Kyrie, like, indicates he wants out. You know, Dallas can recoup the pick they lost. You know, their pick is actually, you know, it's it's a definite pick. It's going to be a good pick this year. Um, they can get some shoot more shooting with Beasley to put around Luka. Uh, D'Lo obviously has some skill and needs the ball less than Kyrie does. I, there's, there's like, reasons you can kind of do mental gymnastics to get, the, like, why swapping these two players makes some sense if the Lakers are giving up more than just D'Lo. But it's going to be a lot, right? It's like... Maybe we keep Austin if we get Kyrie. If we get Kyrie and we're hard capping ourselves, we have to, we're going to lose like some or like, frankly, like most or all of like Rui, uh, you know, uh, Beasley, Bamba. Um, the chance to just keep like a bunch of our guys that who did a really nice job for us this, this year. And then on top of that, like hard cap yourself to limit your flexibility to build a roster around Anthony Davis, Kyrie and LeBron. Like, I know, again, being in the playoffs, being deep in the playoffs and seeing what it really comes down to, uh, you know, you kind of give gives flashbacks to when we made the, the run a couple years ago. But it really does boil down to your two best, your two or three best players against the other team's two or three best players and like who's going to win out in those matchups. So by that, you know, logic, if you have Kyrie Irving as your third guy next to LeBron and A.D., you should win most matchups, but I think Kyrie has proven time and time again that he's just like not necessarily that guy, and he brings a lot of off-court baggage that you just can't ignore anymore. You know, so like it—it it just feels like a waste. I, and Fred Van Vliet, I'm not even going to waste time with it because it's like <laughs> it's even worse, right? Like you can't like we're, we're like suggesting the silliness. We're getting of another, smaller. Yeah, the silliness of like another team hard capping themselves for D'Angelo Russell. Like I know Fred Van Vliet is kind of thought of as on a different tier, but. We're still we're getting smaller to hard cap ourselves to pay six foot tall Fred Van Fleet thirty million a year. It just feels silly. Yeah, and then on top of it, like I mentioned, the these teams are not doing this to help the Lakers unless they're getting assets in return. So number seventeen pick goodbye, um, maybe even Max Christie goodbye. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Even if you get Fred Van Vliet at $30 million a year, there is a scenario where you, where you can retain Rui, you can retain Reeves, but again, you would lose your first round pick and you would be right up at the hard cap line. And depending on what Rui makes, I have him at $15 million right now, but let's say a team offers him $17 million, then you can't keep him, right? So yeah. that, And that's the Fred Van Vliet scenario. That's crazy. And the only way that you could maybe get Fred Van Vliet and this working out is if Fred Van Vliet opts into his player option of $22 million this next season, which I don't know why he would do that, but let's say he doesn't have any suitors. If he opts into that contract, then yes, the Lakers can trade Mo Bamba, Malik Beasley for him and not hard cap themselves. So that's the only scenario in which I see that happening. But with regards to the Kyrie thing, if you have that much of a hard-on for Kyrie, Tommy, and I understand why you would, just wait till midseason yeah. to trade for him so that you don't get hard-capped. You know, I don't know why people are so horny to get this done during the summer. Yeah. You know, if there was, considering that we started this 
last season off with a wait and see approach with Russell Westbrook oh, on this exactly. roster. I was going to say the same thing. If there's ever a time to wait and see, do a wait and see approach, it's with this roster with D'Angelo Russell, Vanderbilt, Rui, and Reeves, right? It's like yeah, if we were able to do that this past season, then can we do it with this one at least? So. Yeah, because like if we're going to wait and see this group, you can wait and see yourself to a top four seed. You know what I mean? Like kind of <laughs> yeah. guaranteed. But like, you know the floor. Season, yeah, it's like last year is like, well, wait and see. Okay, we started the season two and 10. Um, how long are we supposed to, you know what I mean? Like, it's obviously last year's wait and see was like set up for disaster, whereas this year would be the year to wait and see. I mean, give those, these guys a chance. Like, we we saw how Russ looked with LeBron and AD. It was awful. It never clicked. And they were like, well, I'll give him a chance to get some reps, get another training camp. And it was still awful. Okay. Like, <laughs> these guys actually deserve a chance for a training camp because they've showed that they can have like playoff success. That's like, that, yeah. that's meaningful, you know? For sure. I agree with you. I guess the only interesting name before we take it to break would maybe be this talk of DeJounte Murray. He's on like a $17 million expiring contract. I think you would be a little bit more interested in that, right? But it's still kind of a wonky fit because he's not exactly a pure shooter either. So He's not, but he plays defense, so at least you get that. He does. Yeah, so I would opt for that if they can do that. I'm not sure why the Hawks would do that. You know, it would still be Malik Beasley in the number 17th pick, but the Hawks are a win now team, I think, for right now. Anyways, let's take it to break. When we return after break, let's get into the spicy stuff, Tommy. Let's look at non-taxpayer Emily, Emily candidates, and get an early look at who may be our top candidates for the Lakers at those spots. So we will take it to break, and we will catch you guys after the turn. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc all right so we are back and i think the prevailing notion and you know too long didn't read summary over the first part of this episode was try and keep the continuity as much as you can because it also helps you out in the future in terms of moving away from certain contracts and trades because you want to just have as many mid-level to high salary ballots as you can moving forward. And then one thing that we didn't mention at the top, Tommy, is the fact that the salary cap spikes over the next few years are going to continue to be higher and higher. And so D'Angelo Russell at $22 million, that's like $13 million in the past CBA, you know, right. of the last five years. That's like a Jordan contract signing for three years, like $36 million. $22 million sounds like a lot, but in the new CBA, it's really not going to be that much. So just keep that in mind. And now for this second part of the episode, we are going to be talking about our early look at some MLE candidates. We're not going to go through everybody who's going to be available, but we're going to go through like our top three Candidates based off of a list of guys that we've looked at. I I will caveat and say that 
as we mentioned at the top, will probably be operating under the assumption that the Lakers only have the taxpayer mid-level of $7.4 million to use. But Tommy, let's say we do have the non-taxpayer Emily of $12 million. I think there are some guys on this list who, if they somehow would take that money, I think we would be happy to get. And so I don't know if this is going to blow up your list, but I'm going to list some of those players. Yeah. I think Brooke Lopez falls yep. in that category, Definitely right? Does. In the yep. non-taxpayer $12 million. I think restricted free agent Kobe White, if he gets let off his qualifying offer, falls yes. into that category. Yep. What about Nas Reed? Nas Reed, I think he's interesting. I think you got to put him in the, in the category too. Yeah, he's only 24. Yeah. Uh, 23, 24, which is crazy. He looks very old. But anyways, 23, 24 for a very athletic forward slash center who can shoot threes. Yeah. And then this is kind of baseline, but what do you think about Karis LeVert? Karis LeVert would not be my go-to, but I think like he is someone who could probably be had in that range. Yeah. Okay. So out of Nas Reed, Brooke Lopez, Kobe White, Karis LeVert, you would all put them at the top of your list. Maybe not Karis, but Kobe White, Brooke Lopez, Nas Reed, is it safe to assume that they would be at the top of your list if for some reason we had the non-taxpayer Emily or for some reason any of those guys decide to come for the $7.4 million tax Emily? Those guys are among the highest. The one, the one na- only name that I had on my list that you didn't was Josh Hart, but I, I think he's getting more than $12 million anyway, so... Yeah, I think he's scheduled to make potentially $18 million a year, uh, according yeah, to that's, different sources. That's wild. All right, so with regards to our top three or five for the taxpayer, Emily, let's start with like your number three first, Tommy, and then we'll work our way down to your top, okay? Yeah. Who is number three on your list and why? So number three on my list is Cam Reddish. Um, Mm. I, you know, Cam Reddish has obviously been linked to us for a while. Um, I like his defensive upside. I think the thing that makes me a little bit nervous is he's so athletic and his measure, his sort of measurements jump out, you know, jump off the page at you and, he has shown the ability to somewhat consistently, I guess like the shooting, right, is what it comes down to. Like how consistently can he make shots um, and how smart is he going to play? I just feel like with Phil Handy, what we've seen him be mm-hmm. able to do with these sort of like former lottery picks who just never got the guidance that they needed. Um, you know, I, I could see Cam Reddish coming here and sort of thriving, especially like, you know, he's got the clutch connection he probably because of that knows LeBron and AD. He's going to work hard. This is going to be like, you know, he's in that critical time, right? Where he was, he's coming off this like former number one picks or former high, like high-ish lotto pick status, but he doesn't, you know, hasn't been able to get an extension, has bounced from Atlanta to New York, kind of got frozen out of the rotation by Tibbs. Um, you know, th- there's like a lot um, that hasn't sort of, worked out for him but if he hits i think for seven million like it's hard you're not it's it's going to be hard to find a veteran player and i know he's only been in the league for a few years but at least he has that experience who can come in and sort of give exactly what we need which is big wing size with athleticism and length yeah i think it's finally time to get cam reddish clutch client on the lakers after two or three years of rumors swirling around of cam reddish to the lakers and Cam Reddish is actually on my list, but I have him at number two. 
So I might as well just speak further on him because Cam Reddish also represents that in-between player, Tommy, that we need. That wingish player who can make himself skinny and slide himself across screens and chase people. I don't know if Cam Reddish is necessarily that player, but I believe with Phil Handy, he can be that player and be a little bit more mobile than Jared Vanderbilt was. And then on the offensive end, definitely be a much more competent offensive player, spacing things out to the three-point line, being a better finisher when he cuts, et cetera, et cetera, right? When he got traded to Portland this past season, he averaged 11 points, 2.9 rebounds, 1.9 assists. He did have 1.2 steals, which is a really good steal rate in only 27 minutes. And he only shot 32% from three, hitting 1.4. So I think that's still a work in progress, but his shot has always looked mechanically very fluid. And his best season in his NBA career came in the 2021-22 season with Atlanta right before he got traded to the New York Knicks. And in that season, he averaged 12 points, 2.5 rebounds, one assist, one steal on 38% from three, 1.7 makes from three. So I think there is definitely clay to work with with regards to Cam Reddish, even though he isn't this like polished, like surefire 3 and D wing that some Lakers fans make him out to be. I think with what we've seen from Rui's growth alone and what Phil Handy has been able to do with other developmental players, even a guy like THT, I think Cam Reddish can really grow and flourish here. So Cam Reddish is my number two. So then why don't we move on to your number two? Okay, this is a guy who I have not been high on up to this point. But in thinking about this a little bit more, I think I would put, and this is a guy who would have to be renounced, by the way, because he's a restricted free agent, but I would put Matisse Thibel at number two. Um, Mm. I think for the longest time, I was just so put off by his inability to shoot, but he is so elite defensively, and he has shown flashes. I mean, he did hit this past season 36.5%. I mean, I know he takes low volume. I know he takes like mostly just completely wide open dare shots, but he's had like an upward sort of trend. Um, and, and then like really came into his own, um, after he was traded to Portland. Right. So look, it was a small sample ish. It was a quarter of the season, but in that quarter of the season, he was playing the heaviest minutes he's played in his career, 28 a game. He hit 44% from the field and 39% from three. Like Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not 1.5 makes. 1.5 1.5 makes so his volume went up significantly right I'm like look he's a 62 he still shot 62 percent from the free throw line I'm not like I'm not gonna get fooled by this and assume that this guy is just like a mid to high 30s lock three-point shooter now but if he can even hit mid 30s um I think he has like a lot of untapped upside still I mean he is 26 uh but we need someone in this like 6-5 range who could do both like guarding some big wings, which I think he can, but also like uh, staying in front of guys on the perimeter. That's like a huge need for us. We can't have Austin like be our primary, you know, initiator when LeBron's off the floor and then also be our best perimeter defender. I think we need one more guy. And because of that, I I go Thibault. So that's very interesting because when I proposed him to you very early on in this process, you were like, nah, dude, but it it seems like you've had a change of heart. And I I do want to add, though, and I'm sorry I didn't add this qualifier for Cam Reddish, but Cam Reddish is actually also a restricted free agent. I just assume that Portland will renounce his qualifying offer because they have other priorities. And I think Matisse Theibel, if there was anyone they would keep out of the two, I think they would keep Matisse. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah. Because as you mentioned, Matisse played, yeah, at times he started over Cam Reddish. 
outside of the 39% from three hitting uh, 1.5 a game, he also averaged 1.7 steals and 0.8 blocks. So, I mean, this guy is just a force defensively, and he can be that in-between as well because he's he seems taller than 6'5", 6'6", you know, just because of his wingspan and how tough he plays on the defensive end. He almost reminds me a little bit of Caruso in terms of that tough guy, gritty guy who's going to die for loose balls but never quit. He has a very solid foundation to his base and will shovel his feet correctly and also just be an impediment because of how well-built he is. So yeah, I don't have Matisse Thibel on my list, surprisingly. I did have him in my honorable mention list. I have him on... If we... If we drew this list to five players. I had him like number four on my list. Um, but I I think Matisse would be a, definitely a good taxpayer mid-level option if Portland were to renounce his restricted free agent rights. I'm just not sure they would do that because they did still trade Josh Hart for him, you know? So I know they got a future first out of that deal, but I think Matisse Thibault was the prize out of their trade deadline. And I think they will look to retain him. Okay, so... Number three for you was Cam Reddish. Number two was Matisse Thibel. Number two for me was Cam Reddish. My third pick, even though we're kind of going backwards, Tommy, is it's a weird one, but I'm going small for this one, believe it or not. I have a feeling I know who you're going to say, but go ahead. (laughs) Okay, I I don't think you do. Oh. Okay. This guy's a little bit of an older prospect, 27 years old, and I guess he does look his age and maybe even older than his age. But I think it's time to... Bring in Javon Carter. Of the I had Milwaukee him, dude. Bucks. I had him as my borderline. Oh. But I, I, okay, go ahead and then I'll make my point about him. Okay, Javon Carter, eight points, 2.4 assists, 2.5 rebounds, 0.8 steals on 42% from three, hitting 1.8 a game in just 22 minutes. Yeah. But obviously, Javon Carter's calling card is his point of attack defense and how relentless he is on that end. But I think what he showed this year on the offensive end is what surprises me the most because there were moments throughout the season when Drew Holiday was out that they relied on Javon Carter to step up. And so some of Javon Carter's best games, Tommy, include 36 points, 12 assists, one steal, 15 of 27 from the field, hitting 5 of 10 from three in a win. And then yeah. 24 points, 5 assists, 9 of 13 from the field, 4 of 5 from 3 in a win. 22 points, 9 of 13 from the field, 4 of 5 from 3 in a win. And then he's got other games where he's shooting 6 of 8 from 3, 5 of 7, 6 of 10, 6 for 4. T- I didn't realize how good a 3-point shooter this dude was. Yeah. And if you attach that to what you already know of him as this pesky like point of attack, relentless defender... He can pretty much do what Dennis Schroeder does, but with better fundamentals, you know, and a stronger body and base. So get to why Javon Carter was your borderline and why having Javon Carter as my number three pick makes sense. So he was definitely my borderline guy when it came to Cam because Cam is such like an unknown. Um, I think actually Javon has shown a lot more. Um, Like you mentioned, he's a little bit older. He was a former second round pick, but his calling card went from when he was drafted out of West Virginia has always been his defense. The question was, would he be able to develop something offensively? Now I think he's like sneakily done that. Like he had a huge seat. I mean, he played in 81 games for the bucks this year. The bucks were the best team in the NBA and they just got upset in the first round. Um, Blame Giannis injuries or whatever, but the bucks were probably for the bulk of the season, the best team in the league when healthy. 
Um, you mentioned the 42% on pretty high volume, almost two makes a game. And again, over 81 games, he did that. He started almost half of those games. So mm-hmm. I really, really, really like him. I liked him with the Bucks. I always got confused as to why Bud wasn't playing him more. I got confused as to why Bud didn't really stick with him in the playoffs. I mean, candidly, I didn't follow their series that closely, but Bud definitely went away from him in the playoffs. Um, the only reason I shied away is because he's six one, and I feel like you know mm-hmm. over an eighty two game season, he can be the a guy. But I worry, you know, again when you're thinking about projecting a starting backcourt, let's just say you're projecting it as D'Lo and Austin Reeves. Because neither of those guys, like you, in some ways you might say like, okay, yeah, Javon Carter makes a lot of sense because he's like a point of attack guy, but you need a bigger guard who, you you know, the point of attack thing helps, but you do need a strong defensive guard. I mean, Javon Carter maybe helps you and a little bit, but like Jamal Murray is still shooting over him. You know what I mean? So it, 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 though, that's the main issue I have, I had with Carter. Yeah, I agree with you. So why don't you give me your number one early taxpayer Emily candidate on your list my number one is a guy I hate but I have to put him at number one it's <laughs> Jay Crowder um I think oh Jay Crowder, interesting okay I, I think Jay Crowder as like you know he's 32 years old he's right in the range like I I think if we're thinking about where can we maximize actual rotational value Jay Crowder makes some sense to me because he's a veteran who you know you can slot in um immediately i mean this dude could literally start for us game one of the season um he is a guy that you can put out there next to lebron and ad and just be like whoever the best perimeter you know wingish kind of player on the opponent team is like you could just put him on that guy every single night it's sort of like the kcp effect with perimeter guys like you just knew kcp is t- is going to chase around the opposing team's best perimeter player for 82 games i think jay crowder can do that with wings for 82 games save lebron's legs um his physicality will probably help ad a little bit in the post you know i think the thing that annoys me about him other than sort of his attitude is um his three point shooting has never been consistent. He nailed threes for the Bucks after sitting out half a you know, sorry, 75% of the year, but um that was obviously a relatively small sample size. You know, he's mostly hovered around mid thirties with with kind of wild fluctuations thrown in there randomly. Um so that that is a little concerning to me, but it you know, we got beat a little bit because of lack of physicality. And I feel like Jay Crowder, whether he's on the floor or off the floor, brings that sort of no-nonsense physicality. And again, he's not my personal favorite player. I just think if you're thinking of maximizing rotational minutes using these pieces, he is a sure thing, more so, in my opinion, than a guy like Cam Reddish or a guy like uh, Javon Carter in the playoffs. Yeah, those are very fair points. And given LeBron's recent comments about not being sure whether he wants to return, even though it's been Palenka's MO, which I have agreed with in terms of going after younger players with the MLE the past few years, this may be the season where he bucks that trend just because he has to show LeBron something, right? And even though Jay Crowder is on the tail end of his career at 32 years old, you have convinced me that he would fill a need immediately and help quell and pacify LeBron's concerns about where this season is going versus 
even though it's clutch client Cam Reddish, it's like, oh, Cam Reddish, do we need to develop this guy again? You know? Exactly. Okay, Mike, one question to you, though, is Jay Crowder shot 43% from three this year, which is great. Are you concerned about his no-show in the playoffs, though, in the first round versus the Heat? Because, yeah, he didn't do anything. He averaged like 13 minutes, 15 minutes, 12 minutes. I don't know what that was about. Uh, Are you concerned about that at all? I am a little bit concerned. uh, But again, I think the sample size is what makes me, his overall career sample size is what makes me less concerned than a guy like, again, Thibault or Reddish, who are more like unknowns to me. Like Jay Crowder played very, very well when the Suns made their run. He didn't play as well, like two years ago, right? He didn't play as well um, shooting, especially last year when they lost to Dallas in the second round. But, you know, 2020, uh, excuse me, 2019, 2020, NBA Finals run with Miami played very well. 2020, uh, 2021, NBA Finals run with Phoenix played very well. Mm. He's proven he can do it. And so that's like, again, just taking the sort of question marks out of the equation i think like he would be a guaranteed like starter i think day one i'm not saying he starts in the playoffs per se like maybe things change over the year guys develop whatever but game one of the season i think you could slot him in and everybody would be happy yeah that's fair and i think jay crowder is almost like the older (laughs) well if you give the bunny a gun something happens anyways uh, i think with (laughs) I think with Jay Crowder, he almost fits that everybody is has a hard-on for Dorian Finney-Smith, right? Jay Crowder yes. is pretty much an older Dorian Finney-Smith who's been to the top. He's been to the finals twice in a row, like you mentioned, and has proven he can fit around other stars. So I actually like that move, and now I'm questioning my number one because it's like the exact opposite of a Jay Crowder. Okay. Um, so for my number one taxpayer Emily candidate in this early portion of the offseason that we're going through. And again, this is likely going to change in the leading weeks heading into free agency. But my number one guy is like an earlier version of Jay Crowder. It's like the earlier prototype. And it is Jalen McDaniels. And so Jalen McDaniels was on the Charlotte Hornets last season, and then he got traded to the Philadelphia 76ers. If they want to retain him, the Sixers, I believe, have full bird rights on him, and they can. I just don't know whether they will because they have things to sort out contractually with James Harden, how their team is going to look after that. And they and I think 25-year-old Jalen McDaniels may be a casualty of this. And I just like Jalen McDaniels' mold. He is the brother of Jaden McDaniels. And to me, he fits that this is the Trevor Ariza guy that you, mm-hmm. you know may take a little bit more time, but with regards to bridging the gap between he's not as raw as Trevor Ariza was when we got him, but he also hasn't yet got into that place of elite 3 and D. I do think he's a better defender than Cam Reddish is. Three-point shooting-wise, I'm actually not sure because with Charlotte, he shot 32% hitting 1.2 a game on low volume, obviously. He hit 38% the year before that on low volume, making 0.7 a game. But I think his shot mechanics are fluid as well. And if you look at his free throw percentage, 82%, 85%, 84%, it kind of portends to him being a at least mechanically good shooter. And so I think there's room to grow there. But with Charlotte, he played 56 games with Charlotte, um, averaged 26 minutes, 10.6 points, 5 rebounds, 2 assists, 1.2 steals, 0.5 blocks, uh, 45% from the field, 
uh, 32% from three, hitting 1.2 a game. I just like what I saw from him on both ends of the floor as well as his motor. He is literally the in-between of Jared Vanderbilt and maybe Troy Brown, where he's better offensively than both Troy Brown and Jared Vanderbilt. But he offers that sort of Vanderbilt motor in terms of running up and down the floor, catching lobs, finishing better than Vando, but also just being such a pest with his wingspan. I believe he has like a seven foot one wingspan and he's a legit six, eight, six, nine. So I wouldn't mind if Rob Palenka continued to go the way of finding a mid 20s sort of player and hoping that he can continue to grow. Because if you give me Cam Reddish and Jalen McDaniels, I feel like it's a toss up and Jalen has at least shown a better floor of locking in defensively than Cam Reddish has. Cam Reddish maybe just has like the higher ceiling offensively. But what are your thoughts on Jalen McDaniels? I really like Jalen McDaniels a lot as a player. I think I would like him more if we didn't have Jared Vanderbilt for us, right? Like, I think Mm -hmm. Vando, I mean, you mentioned it. Like, Vando is probably not even as uh, offensively developed as as McDaniels. Um, But Vando is still young. Uh, He actually is younger than than Jalen McDaniels, which is interesting. Um, But he... You know, in terms of motor guys, like the thing I like about Vando is he competes on the glass. I, I mean, again, we saw in the postseason, unfortunately, he's going to get played off the floor unless he develops like any semblance of an offensive game. And he really, really, really does not like contact. But he's had multiple seasons now. I mean, 21 22, he averaged 8.4 rebounds with the Wolves. This past season, he averaged eight rebounds with the Jazz and seven rebounds when he got moved over to us um, and was obviously playing next to AD at that point. Um, I think, like, you know, McDaniels is... I just don't see his role on a team that already has Vanderbilt. Unless, like, you know, Mm -hmm. we had time to, like, really see if we could get something out of his perimeter shooting game. Um but I like him as a young prospect, and if we had more room, I'd, or if we were in a different sort of situation at, as a franchise, maybe I would I would take a closer look. Yeah, it's a fair point, and I think if Jalen McDaniels could shoot like Jay Crowder, then it would be an easy, oh, that guy starts at the three sort of conversation. But as of now, it's still TBD still. Um, so yeah, that'll do it for our sort of early Emily list of guys we're looking at or monitoring so far. Tommy, was there any like, other honorable mentions in your list that you had a hard time fitting in? Because for me, I also thought of guys like um, Dylan Brooks. No. (laughs) Gabe Vincent, I I, I think he might make more on the open market, and I'm going to assume Miami tries to keep Gabe Vincent, but Gabe Vincent would be amazing as this tough, defending, almost like a Javon Carter type, right? He shoots threes, uh, plays tough defense, and has, you know, is under that Miami Heat culture, Eric Spolstra sort of guidance and development in his game. So Gabe Vincent will be good. I also threw out Kelly Oubre, even though I don't think he's what we need right now, but he is like a lanky wing. Um, And then some of my weird ones, Tommy, would be Jackson Hayes. Mm. (laughs) I think it's too much of a swing to take, but I do think his time with New Orleans is done. I think they're going to rescind his qualifying offer. But, you know, if you get the young JaVale McGee, it might be an option. But for a more stable version of Jackson Hayes, Tommy, you will never expect this. I also was thinking about Drew Eubanks. Now, I think Drew Eubanks is more of a... Drew Banks, I think, is more of a split MLE candidate. Like, you use a portion of the MLE on him. But I also wouldn't mind if you give him the full thing because I think he's shown enough... 
um, in his time with Portland and even the Spurs. I think this guy is severely getting slept on, by the way, because with Portland last year, he averaged 14 points, 8 rebounds, 1.6 assists, 0.8 steals, 0.5 blocks, 64% from the field, can sometimes hit threes. Um, and yeah, he's he's just, I think he's really good, and he's only like 25 years old. But were there any other guys who you were maybe uh, tossing back and forth? I mean, all the guys you mentioned, uh, Javon was the one I didn't technically include on my list, but he he was, you know, sort of the one I was going back and forth on. And then I think Seth Curry, I mean, it's just like I'm because of the LeBron AD situation and mm. the fact that we were just unable to hit any perimeter shots in the playoffs, like in down the stretch, like when when the games tightened, I think I just, you know, I like the three point shooting, obviously, but. I the problem with him again is going to be he's going to be played off the court um, by the time you get to the conference finals stage. Yeah, I think Seth Curry may end up being like the next uh, Quinn Cook or something like that. You know what I mean? Even though Seth Curry is really good three point shooter, but he's regular. Doesn't do much else. Yeah. Can I can I say though instead of Seth Curry, what if Alec Burks got let off of his club option by the Pistons. I think I would opt for Alec Burks. I like Alec Burks too. I think my issue with him is he's a little bit too similar to what like Reeves and D'Lo are going to give us. And so that's why like Curry is more of just like a, I'm just going to, I can take a hundred threes in a game and, and, you know, drill it like high volume type of guy. And Burks, yeah, Burks is more of just like an all around scorer, but he's good too. I mean, I like Burks. Yeah, but don't sleep on Alec Burks' three-point shooting. I believe he's been like a 40% three-point shooter he's over the last solid. few yeah, years, yeah. like hitting two a game, too. Um, yeah, but that'll do it. Also, keep an eye out for Dennis Smith Jr. I think this is more of a guy for a split Emily candidate as well, but I really Disage. like what he did with the Charlotte Hornets. Sorry? Disage. Yeah, Disage. Uh, Lonzo Ball's draft class year. I think he was one of the guys that we also like coming into that draft class, but I think he's really found kind of his calling card in the NBA, sort of the way that Chris Dunn has sort of resurfaced as well. But he is a really good defender and still very, very athletic and very fun to watch. So keep an eye out for him. But for now, that'll be our early Emily, tax Emily list and guys that we would look at for the Lakers coming in July. But obviously this list will change the further we see what happens during draft night. Either way, the Lakers have a lot of options and... It all starts with keeping much of the same core and then filling it, filling it out from there, seeing what we get at draft night, whether we get any trades. And then I think the MLE landscape will look a little bit clearer from there. But for now, this is our early look at some guys that we potentially would want to want the Lakers to give a contract to. So with that said, Tommy, I will catch you next time. And yeah, uh, draft season is here. So let's go. Let's go. All right. See ya. Peace. 